0: Welcome to another edition of the Unpacked uh, Podcast from Unheard. Uh, my name is Tim Montgomery, editor of Unheard. And uh, we're always as always we're joined by Peter Franklin, who edits our daily guide to the best writing and thinking that he can find on the World Wide Web. And for the first time on one of our podcasts, we have. Katie Harrison. Hello, Katie. Hello. Uh, Katie writes a regular column on religion for unheard and um, is a great interpreter of what is going on in the world's faiths. Um, It was wonderful having you on our team, Katie. So, we've, as always, chosen three of Peter's recent columns for us to look at, and we're recording on a Thursday uh, this week, the day after. Donald Trump and Theresa May clashed somewhat um, on Twitter Um, and Peter you'd written earlier in the week uh, uh, very interestingly on the focus on Trump um, as a person um, by the media and we've covered before Nigel Cameron our technology editor has written before about the consequences of that focus on Trump ...for coverage of other issues like developments in science and world events. But your point was the focus on Trump the circus, if you like... ...means actually some of his administration's policies aren't being examined either.
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, my argument was that we should pay a bit less attention... ...to the, you know, obviously grotesque aspects of the Trump presidency and look a bit harder at the serious aspects and obviously that argument was brilliantly well-timed because <laughs> along comes you know yet another tw- tweet possibly the most outrageous one yet. And uh, for,
0: for anyone who has been on holiday or living on the moon or, or, or something this, this was a tweet by Donald Trump retweeting um, anti-Muslim videos from a far-right, essentially fascist, Group based in Britain.
1: That's right. Um, So, obviously, we've been talking about not much else this week, but the point of the article that I was unpacking, which was by Tyler Cowan on his Marginal Revolution vlog, um, was that actually the Trump administration is pursuing a number of quite interesting and consequential foreign policy initiatives and you know we don't really talk much about that especially in Europe
0: I think. Give us a couple of examples of where of the consequential foreign policy changes that you identified that you thought are not getting the attention that they should.
1: Well obviously there's North Korea in which he's... That's getting
0: lots of attention. Well
1: that is but behind it all is a Um, something a bit more subtle which is a a phrase that's used by both um, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama when they were respectively running um, foreign policy in the United States Um, and that is the pivot to Asia now this is the idea that America should pay less attention to events over the Atlantic Ocean and look the other way over the Pacific Ocean to the Asian sort of theatre of of geopolitics, um, and the interesting thing is that Trump appears to be continuing with that policy. Indeed, um, because Obama was, in the end, distracted by events like the Syrian conflict. Um, he never really sort of totally saw through the pivot to Asia. But the point of the Tyler Cowan article was, actually, we see Trump spending a lot of time, for instance, with uh, Prime Minister Abe in Japan, um, quite a lot of time on Indian issues as well. So in terms of serious, kind of un- under-the-radar
0: foreign policy,
1: we see that Asian focus. Mm.
0: And you mentioned in the yes. Tyler Cohen article Europe is mentioned once or twice? I well, think Just Isn't once just or like twice. As a, as, a, as a throwaway. Yes, Not I mean, even, you know. yes.
1: I mean there's, there's there's a quick point about, um, oh yes, well Merkel appears to be tottering, um, which may be why um, Trump seems much more interested in the Japanese Premier. Mm. Um, so, you know, Europe you know, <laughs> here we're we're in despair over Trump this week more than ever. Um, but in some ways, uh, for all all the um, all of his clownishness, his buffoonery, we forget that <laughs> he is it's geopolitically relevant in a way that Europe increasingly isn't. But I it's heard. the
2: buffoonery, Katie it, Harrison. It's the buffoonery, isn't it, which distracts us from that and clouds it. I think it wouldn't be, would it, quite so under the radar if he weren't you know contradicting his own secretary of state or um saying things that we would find find impolite at least um to all sorts of people around the world while these other developments are happening so does he want us even to know that these things are happening are they deliberate distractions or why why is it that you do you think that we're not seeing this
1: i doubt it's deliberate it's just him isn't it i mean there's there's no sort of rhyme or reason to these things. It, it, and that's that's a frightening thing about it. So much of it does seem to be genuinely impromptu. And that's not what you want from the leader of the free world.
2: And I think that's quite important, though, isn't it? I think whenever I meet a Trump supporter, um, they always... Do you
0: meet many Trump supporters? <laughs> are, you, are you part of some sort of Trump supporters gathering? Or I think it's
2: important to talk and listen to lots of different kinds of people. Um, whenever I meet a Trump supporter, they always always want want to talk about how he's misrepresented in the media and how nobody understands the value of what he's doing and he's it's actually very fake news. He, well he's actually well and of course there are these are the you know the regulatory framework in the states for media is completely different to here so there are less checks and balances about some levels of impartiality it's much easier to hear and consume things which reinforce your own view but let's face it he's the person tweeting those things which distract us and point to his buffoonery rather than his achievements and progress so I'm interested in what you think that is telling us about um, his reputation and where that's going to end up.
1: Well I think looking at the serious actions he's been taken I wouldn't necessarily call them progress or achievements but they are consequential Um, and another one that I should have mentioned is of course his um, quite close links to the new regime if you can call it that in Saudi Arabia. Suddenly, a, f- a new powerful faction within that now, regime. You see,
0: that's where I agree with you on Saudi Arabia, and maybe you could yet be right on North Korea. Although, again, I think it's more rhetoric than actual policy, um, sub- substantial policy change. But this is actually a rare post of yours where I was not persuaded, ah. and um, it was partly, I think, um, Neil Ferguson uh, a little while ago in an interview with Radio Four said, "If you look at some." Th- previous presidents like JFK, they really did make massive changes to, you know, American foreign policy. What they did was consequential. He said there is a massive focus in the media at the moment on what Trump says, which Mm. where we agreed. But actually, he said, if you look at his policy changes, they're they're not that considerable yet. Now that might change, but I'm with Neil Ferguson still, I, I think, and I think you slightly conceded that in what you said a little while ago. The pivot to Asia is a continuity of U.S. foreign policy rather than a a disjunction. And remarkably, I think, in in many respects, if you look at some of the people he's appointed to the Pentagon or the State Department, these are largely continuity characters. Now, personally, I think the continuity moment in, in the U.S. is of decline. I think you've had three presidents in a row, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, that eventually have essentially presided over American decline and Trump is continuing that there's no big initiative that I think has started to restore US power but that for me is the story of the Trump presidency at the moment internationally I think it's brought America into disrepute in lots of eyes of the world's populations but that's because of what he says not of what because of what he's done
1: Well, there is an element of continuity, certainly, but if he is the president that properly sees through the pivot to Asia in in a way that Obama didn't manage, then that is consequential. Also,
0: China is uh, it was very interesting because do you remember how China stopped giving red carpet treatment to Obama? I think when he he was one of the few world leaders wants to attend a summit in Beijing, and they did China deliberately did not give him red carpet whereas they have given all of those sort of tributes and courtesies mm. uh, to Trump. So, I, but I, I think the case is unproven yet. But well, there's
1: a real tie-in, of course, to Trump's domestic agenda as well, because he's obsessed with trade and the great exporting economies of China, India, etc. are crucial to mm. that and to what he sees as his way of... Um, reviving American industry yeah. and manufacturing.
0: But trade, I think, again, I think that proves my point. Um, he had certainly pulled out of the um, Asian trade deal um, that Obama had negotiated. No. But but Clinton and Sanders have said that they would have pulled out of it as well. They, he could not have got it through Democrats on quite a lot of Republicans in the in the House. so.
1: Well, I think that shows Trump setting the agenda and others following it. I
0: think maybe, I think he was following where certainly the Democrats had gone, maybe not so much the Republicans, but one person who we could argue is setting the agenda and has been an incredibly consequential uh, world leader was the subject of another post that um, you wrote, which was a certain Vladimir Putin. Um, good
2: friend of yours, I believe, Tim. At the Legatum Institute, <laughs> yes. Uh, all of my instructions come
0: from the Kremlin. But um, if you're not understanding why Katie um, made that joke, um, I will direct you. I should direct you to a defence of the Legatum Institute I wrote for our blog um, after the Mail on Sunday had uh, uh, attacked it. But um, Katie, you've knocked me off course. We will now <laughs> return to the main menu. And the main menu is Vladimir Putin. And... You made the very interesting point, um, Peter, that although Putin would have hated and has disowned the inv- interventions of George W. Bush in Iraq, for example, in actually some of the consequences for Russia of interventions in Syria and particularly Ukraine, he's he's facing some of the same problems and issues.
1: Yes, it's a point made by uh, Michael Dempsey in a piece for um, Bloomberg in which he sets out the supposed strategic master strokes of um, Putin uh, whether in Syria or eastern Ukraine and points out that yes things have happened that that the West certainly disapproved of um, but as a result um, Russia finds itself embroiled in some very expensive and violent conflicts, um, and this really isn't necessarily um, quite as um, brilliant of a handling of Russia's foreign policy as, you know, we're we're led to believe. Um, If you take Ukraine, um, Russia didn't really want to acquire any more sort of pocket statelets that it had to sub it has to subsidize it's already got a few of those in places like Moldova and Georgia um, it's now acquired Crimea and two bits of eastern Ukraine um, and you know th- this is a drain on Russian resources and furthermore it's made the rest of Ukraine it's turned The the Ukrainian population that was actually fairly Mm -hmm. pro-Russian, a lot of it anyway, um, into, you know, they're they're now, for obvious reasons, quite hostile to Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it would have been much better for Putin if he could have kept Ukraine on side, um, but not having to subsidize any bits of it, except through uh, gas exports um uh, but no no he's 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 um found himself saddled with some <laughs> ongoing problems not dissimilar from the ones that America has saddled itself with in Afghanistan yeah. Iraq
0: and elsewhere Okay, Katie Harrison you buy what Peter's written?
2: well uh, I think that um, I'm quite interested in Putin's actions back in, was it 2013 in Ukraine, a- around then, and what what that has precipitated or what that was already a part of in terms of the sort of global shift away from big global institutions. Um, so uh, Putin basically left uh, G8, we went back to G7, that sort of thing, as a result of those actions. And uh, then a few years later, we see um, the UK voting to leave the EU. And... Um, and I, I would argue, having worked in international development for a long time, that the UN is arguably less effective now it, than it had been in previous iterations. So I'm interested in the contribution that mm. Putin's actions have made. Not sure made. the UN
0: has ever been effective, but that's a whole well, other I, discussion.
2: I'm wondering how much is Putin part of something that was already happening, and how much did he precipitate some of that? Do you think? I think
1: quite a lot. I mean, it used to be the case that liberal centrists or left-wing opinion in the West. Was actually a, um, I, I guess, a break on conservative hawkish anti-Russian attitudes. Um, if you remember, um, in the 2012 presidential election, um, the Republican candidate then um, made some very um, identified Russia as a big threat. Mitt, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney. Um, and <laughs> and yeah, he was... You'd, you'd, you'd forgotten. I had, I just yes. A little, a little <laughs> moment of superiority sorry, over I you. I am so sorry, Mitt. Governor Romney to you. Ga- Governor <laughs> Romney. And, uh, you know, gone but um, not forgotten. Um, gone but clearly forgotten. Yeah, well, okay. indeed, he's been vindicated because he said back in 2012 that oh, Russia is a real threat, and he was mocked for that. Mm. Um, He's not being mocked now. Um,
0: And so I will. For for those who are listening to to, to this um, podcast and want to know what Peter's talking about, we'll put on the feed, the blog, not only the three links to the articles we're discussing today, but we'll put that little video of Mitt Romney... And Barack Obama from those presidential debates up as well, because it's uh, it's quite good to to revisit that actually. But I want to end, Peter, the, the third blog, which is the one I loved most in the last um, uh, few days. Um, it's the story of how I did not know um, New Zealand, you know, one of the most isolated sort of population centres in the in the world, um, originally had no mammals, and its ecosystem was large predator birds instead fulfilling the role of descending on 12-foot-high flightless birds and and, and such like, until Maoris and other uh, humans uh, hunted these uh, creatures down. Mammals were then introduced to New Zealand, and it has a sort of ecosystem more like most other places in the world. And uh, you wrote about a plan to turn the clock back um, by using genetically engineered Uh, rats and um, possums and uh, other mammal creatures that would eventually mean that they were returned to extinction and New Zealand could re-emerge as a a country where there were only these uh, birds and uh, indigenous uh, species. But you're worried that it could go wrong.
1: It could. Um, I should clarify. Oh, I, I, you're now going to get yes. back from Mitt Romney, aren't you? No, 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 no. no. Yeah. I should say... Don't forget that Peter is a zoologist, Um so
2: we're, we're up against it here.
1: <laughs> I have a degree in it. Um, I'm not a practising zoologist. Um, but... Um, Uh, New Zealand did have a few mammal species it had bats because they could fly there Mm -hmm. and it also had sea mammals because they could swim there what it didn't have were things like rats and stoats and things like that that when they actually stowed away with human settlers uh, Maoris um, and then later Europeans um, there was a huge problem that with the you know, there was still a lot of surviving avian wildlife in, in uh, New Zealand, mm-hmm. um, most famously the kiwi of course. Um, these flightless birds, um, very vulnerable to these mammalian predators and so New Zealand's been fighting this conservation battle to save its native wildlife and they've cleared certain islands, offshore islands of mammals and certain reserves, but they've got a plan to rid the entire country of rats and and so on, which is, it's been described as an ecological moonshot in a really very interesting article by Ed Young in The Atlantic. Um, But, Uh, One of the options being considered is something called gene drive technology, which using modern genetic uh, techniques like CRISPR could be a viable way of selecting for certain traits, like, for instance, um, biasing the sex ratio in the target species.
0: The essential thing, though, is that they can genetically... Engineer rats, and uh, so that they become extinct. That's right. Over you a know, course of hundred years, or, or
1: well, I don't know how long it would last. But apparently, with gene drive technology, it can greatly speed up the rate at which a certain gene trait, a sort of sabotage trait, like making sure sabotage. that most of the next generation are male. Yeah which has obvious (laughs) implications Uh, for the size of the generation after that.
0: And so this sounds great if you want to return New Zealand to its sort of, you know, pre-human state. That's right. But your concern is that these genetically engineered rats and possums and stoats Mm. or whatever won't stay in New Zealand, that they will be exported to other parts of the world where, of course, mammals are an intrinsic part of the food cycle and the ecosystem.
1: Absolutely. And... um, It may be unlikely that enough of them would stow away on ships and then make it to other landmasses. But there is a real risk that people will deliberately introduce them. Because obviously these animals are pests the world Mm. over, a lot of them, rats especially. Um, There will be a vested interest amongst certain people to take these genetically modified New Zealand rats, introduce them elsewhere... And see if they can precipitate a similar process of extermination uh, uh,
2: uh, what, would the co- what would the consequences be though on the broader ecosystem and the food chain who who needs rats well, which creatures
1: rodents are you know a very common mammal yes. species they're 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 an integral part of a lot of ecosystems if you lose your if you lose your small mammals then er- anything that feeds on them mm. further up is in trouble as well
0: mm. so you're worried that these will be introduced by scientists to New Zealand and farmers that perhaps don't like rats or whatever will take them for their own uh, self-interest and use them and deploy them in Europe or America or wherever. That's right, yes. How easy would it be, forget New Zealand for a minute, how easy would it be for farmers uh, to do this anyway? How easy would it be for scientists to introduce these sabotage traits into rats and release them... Into the wild in America anyway, someone who or well, just you know just a terrorist for example how, how possible could this be a new frontier in terrorism or uh, just sabotage in the years ahead
1: well it, it's really quite worrying um CRISPR um, brings the ability to genetically engineer all sorts of traits, not just this one that is being considered, and it's mm. not a firm plan in, in New Zealand by any means. But with these new techniques, you know, sort of engineering, say, biological um, weapons, mm. um, making sort of certain uh, microbes much more virulent, that is now a distinct poly- um, possibility. Um, you can buy kits, CRISPR kits, to perform your own experiments really? at home. Yes, well, so yes. Sorry. Well, I mean, they're, they're limited experiments so far, but this is a very, very powerful technique, and really, our politicians need to be properly aware of the possibilities. Because, well, as as far as we know them so far, the scary thing is that, you know, we don't know where this is going to end, but progress does seem to, if you can call it that, progress does seem to be accelerating on this technology and the risks are multiplying accordingly. So we must be aware, we must have plans in place to deal with
0: it. Funny kind of progress. Um, Peter Franklin, thank you as always. Thank you especially to you, Katie, for joining us um, for this podcast. Thank you to James Coney, who puts these podcasts together week in, week out. And um, can I direct you, if you are not subscribed to this podcast on iTunes or your normal podcast provider, please do. And it really helps us if you go to iTunes, whatever, and like and rate um, these podcasts. It's uh, helpful to... Get our podcast on the charts, which brings what we are producing to other people's attention. So, if you can do that, be incredibly grateful. Um, other podcasts at the moment that uh, we've published one. Um, that really has been doing very well in the charts is Douglas Murray on Communism's Forgotten Victims. And tomorrow, um, Aisha Hazarika and I, on our regular weekly podcast, will be talking to the former Liberal Democrat leader, Tim Farron, about a fascinating speech he's given on the Christian roots of liberalism and why he now thinks liberalism is eating itself by trying to uh, push Christianity out of the public square. It's a brave speech he gave, a fascinating speech, and one that we at Unheard are really interested in exploring and following up on. But for now, thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye.